Welcome to episode 86 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest commentator, uh, a uh, uh, world-famous uh, uh, security uh, researcher, Mikko Hüppinen, uh, uh, the chief uh, research officer at F-Secure. Uh, uh, he's been working with computer security for 20 to 25 years at F-Secure, has assisted law enforcement in Europe, in the U.S., Asia on cybercrime cases, uh, campaigned on privacy issues, uh, and done um, extensive classified briefings on the Stuxnet worm. Uh, Miko, how, how close did I come to pronouncing your name properly? I was just about to give you full points for the pronunciation. Ah. In the Finnish language, when you have double K, like I have in, in my first name, it's, you really have a long K, so go hyppenen. That's my name. Yeah, that's uh, uh, I um, I spent a, uh, several months uh, in and out of Finland doing trade cases uh, in the nineties. Uh, uh-huh. So I I learned to. St- Stop lovingly over those double consonants. Um, uh, it was a lot of fun. It's a it's a it's a great country. Uh, I was there May, on May one when apparently the entire country just goes out and gets drunk and stands around in the street. Is that is that pretty much how that that holiday goes? Yeah, that's that's what we do. We we like our long summer holidays, which we mostly spend drunk. <laughs> and right now we're waiting for um, waiting for for the sea to freeze. The Baltic Sea is getting closer every day, and uh, we're expecting. Freezing temperatures next week, so uh, that's going to happen soon. The, so the Baltic Sea is a, is a little <clears throat> less salty than the average ocean, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, for where I am standing right now in Helsinki, in our headquarters, straight south would be Estonia across the Baltic Sea, and that's only like 50 miles away. So, so it's actually right there. On on, to, on the other side of the Baltic Sea would be Sweden, and that's uh, that's several hundred kilometers. But it's not really a big sea, and it's very shallow. All right. Well, uh, we'll we'll talk later about whether whether the uh, Russians are uh, warming up their tanks to see if they'll cross the uh, uh, the frozen uh, uh, sea this year. Uh, they uh, seem enthusiastic about adventures everywhere these days. Uh, I'm also joined by uh, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Uh, welcome, Michael. Be here as always. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA, DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We've got a lot to talk about, uh, uh, and so I will jump right in. Uh, um, fallout from the European Court of Justice decision ending the safe harbor continues. Uh, um, uh, Michael, I know you followed this. Uh, uh, we've got uh, Israel uh, announcing they're cutting off. Uh, the safe harbor uh, uh, or transfers to the U.S. Uh, um, the Irish DPA, uh, the Data Protection Authority, has begun its investigation of Facebook after uh, uh, Irish courts um, uh, uh, okayed or mandated the investigation. Uh, and um, the guy who brought all that litigation is allowed to proceed with his case in Austrian courts, uh, although maybe not as a class action. Uh, uh, what do you make of all this? Yeah, you know, the, the ripple effects are continuing to emanate from from the ECJ's uh, ruling a few weeks ago. And um, Israel is interesting because its own safe harbor was uh, specifically tied to the EU safe harbor. So if someone was, a, uh, if a company in the U.S. was a member of the EU safe harbor arrangement, then an Israeli company could ship personal data to that uh, to that U.S. company, but that's now off. Uh, I guess we still are waiting to see if the Swiss uh, U.S. safe harbor is also going to be invalidated by by Swiss courts. The worry, uh, the worry, I think, if if I understand it, the real worry here is that uh, European law says everybody who um, is deemed to be adequate, must have in place a rule that says we won't send data to jurisdictions that are inadequate. Uh, And so now that the U.S. is inadequate, uh, um, each of these governments, Israel, Switzerland, would risk losing their own adequacy determination if they didn't cut the United States off. It's like a a second-order boycott. I think that's right, and, and uh, I believe Canada is on that list of, of adequate countries. Uh, 
so that would be pretty significant if they decided that they also couldn't uh, send personal data to the U.S. That will be a painful, probably maybe more uh, painful for Canada than the United States. So they will be looking, I'm sure, for a way to uh, uh, resolve that issue or to stall on ruling on it. Uh, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, this is this is messy. I, I noticed that uh, Brad Smith, who's the general counsel of um, uh, Microsoft, um, who has been litigating its own set of cases over international transfers of data, uh, and which is one of the top three cloud providers in the world, uh, proposed a solution uh, to this problem, which was basically a uh, an, an enormous agreement. Uh, 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 among the countries of the world, if I understand it, that I thought was uh, uh, a, a, an expression of just how hard this is, because I th- thought this was completely unworkable. I'll ask you and Miko to talk uh, about this. If, if I understand it, uh, he says, we need an agreement that your legal rights travel with your data wherever they go. So if data is moved from Europe to the United States, it retains all of its uh, uh, legal rights under European law. Uh, then, the having agreed on that, the U.S. and Europe ought to agree on an expedited process for getting access to that information. So if the United States wants to look at a European's data, even when it's stored in the United States, uh, it has to go to the European authorities in a kind of MLAT procedure. Um, and then um, he you know, kindly says, but there'd be an exception if the Europeans were actually in the United States. Uh, and uh, uh, everyone will agree that the only way that they're going to get access to this information is by serving legal process, and nobody's ever going to hack the companies that own this data, uh, and we'll only, we won't go to the cloud providers, we'll only go to the company that has put the data on the cloud. Uh, um, maybe I'll ask uh, uh, Miko to comment on whether that is a plausible uh, response to the uh, uh, loss of the safe harbor, uh, really whether it would even be deemed adequate to, from a European privacy point of view, whether European law enforcement would be willing to uh, um, go through that process to get information about Americans or Uruguayans or Israelis. Um, I'm just not sure this works at all. But, uh, Miko, uh, your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a it's a big mess. That's quite clear. And, of course, the most the biggest change from all of this is that there's going to be plenty of happily employed lawyers to sort this mess out. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And of, course, <laughs> of course. There we go. Now, the background is that Europe has been unable to compete with U.S. in web services and, and uh, cloud services and data storage services. And at some stage, we uh, woke up and realized that we are storing all of our data and all the services we use are in the United States and started to worry about our privacy. And whether this is the right reaction to that, I don't really know. But I am sort of sad that uh, it has come to this. Because if you think about the history of the web, well, the web was invented here in Europe. And if I look at my daily usage of of different websites and and different services, 90% of the services I use are actually in the United States, run by U.S. companies. And if you think about your daily use of different services, uh, I don't know which European services you would use on a daily basis, but it must not be a very, very big part of your, your daily use. So, so what I'm saying is that this data transfer has been completely out of balance, and uh, I guess we've partly been angry at ourselves for not being able to produce any competition that would actually be able to compete with the services coming from USA. Yeah, and I think that this is there is a, a there are people in the European Commission who thinks that that, that uh, they can regulate their way to a vibrant internet economy uh, um, and I think uh, just uh, you know we just gotten earnings from Google and Amazon and um, uh, Microsoft and all of them had big earnings bumps arising from their cloud operations. 
Um, I think the, those, th I mean, Google is struggling to keep up with Amazon and to some extent with, uh, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Microsoft. Uh, um, and if Google is struggling, it's hard to believe that, that uh, uh, Deutsche Telekom is ever going to get close, no matter how many uh, of these uh, uh, barriers to uh, to using U.S. services that they they try to put up, so it, it is going to it's going to create a real problem uh, for the digital economy on both sides of the Atlantic. I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree on that, and uh, we'll, we'll see what will come out of the whole whole uh, whole thing. But it's obviously a very big deal, especially a big deal for you guys working with law. So the, the House, you know, the House of Representatives, uh, as though nothing had happened, just approved a bill that would meet one of the objections that uh, Europe uh, has been raising to U.S. law, uh, saying, you know, uh, uh, Europeans can't bring lawsuits under the Privacy Act. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, in a case of sort of maybe moving too fast, the House of Representatives just granted uh, uh, those rights to uh, uh, Europeans uh, uh, and sent the bill to the uh, Senate. I cannot imagine, I, I sort of thought this was like uh, uh, after the European Court of Justice ruled for the House to send that bill to the Senate is like having somebody uh, slap you upside the head and uh, you say, oh, I was going to give you this present, so I uh, I guess I'll just give it to you anyway. Uh, I, I'm hoping that the Senate takes a long, hard look at uh, whether this Judicial Redress Act ought to pass now or it ought to be subject to... Uh, getting a resolution to the safe harbor provisions. Uh, I don't know. Michael, what did you think? I, I'm still perplexed why anyone thinks that, that even if it's passed, that, that would satisfy Europe. I mean, th their concerns are about U.S. surveillance policy, not about the ability of people to correct records held by the federal government or over the sharing of information. I mean, it seems like a tiny, tiny little issue compared to their real concerns. It is and it isn't. Um, the, the fact is that the most sophisticated European officials know that their protections against overweening intelligence collection are worse than in the United States. So they can't really complain about that, but they can complain that there's a difference between the legal treatment of Americans under their data protection laws uh, and our treatment of Europeans under the Privacy Act. So they've made it a big negotiating issue, but I agree with you, just giving it away in a context where they've just taken something valuable back from the United States is bad negotiating tactics. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I don't disagree with you about that. Um, but it does seem to me whether whether we do it now or do it as part of a negotiation, um, I just can't see the Europeans saying, "Okay, if we get that, we're good to go." Well, we'll see. I I, I think you're right, uh, but they may only need some face-saving assurances uh, um, beyond that. Uh, but it will take so long to get all of that together that I'm predicting that most of the United States companies that were on safe harbor will have gone off and found another resolution. Uh, yeah. and, and then the negotiation over safe harbor will be anticlimactic. But then, but then come January, we may well have the Article 29 Working Party saying, uh, okay, and uh, not only is Safe Harbor dead, but binding corporate rules and model contract clauses are also not a valid means to uh, send data to the U.S. because there's still the risk that the U.S. government is going to be able to get it, and that's the central uh, problem. They, they could do that. I, I suspect that produces massive um, uh, disobedience. Uh, um, at some point, uh, people say, I have to move this data, uh, and uh, they can't investigate everybody. Uh, I'm just going to do it and, uh, and pray. Yeah, and, you know, the fines, at least under the, the, the current directive, are, are so small that I don't, see, I don't see that much of a penalty for disobedience. If we get a new data protection regulation with much greater uh, fine potential, then that's a different story. Mika? It's also interesting to see how, how much the viewpoint has changed during, you know, when the Internet became a thing and when the web became a thing, nobody was, was thinking about these things. Like, we, we thought we had this utopia on the internet where 
you know, borders don't matter, distances don't matter, geography doesn't matter. Nobody cared where in the world they were storing their data. Nobody cared where in the world those particular services were being hosted. It, it's sort of like we thought we had this one world and, and none of the old rules mattered. And now, over the last two, three, four years, people have realized that actually the borders never went away and, and they are still, in, in some ways, they're actually stronger than ever before. I think you're absolutely right. The 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 uh, uh, you and I are both uh, uh, old enough in the internet to remember the the internet hippie days of the '90s uh, when people uh, you know uh, were thinking that the that meat space was just going to have to give way to uh, the new virtu- uh, the new digitocracy, um, but it's not quite working out that way. There's another interesting thing which nicely illustrates this, which is when you think back to the early days of the web, um, nobody would never use their real name on different forums or discussion groups or, or anywhere on the web. Maybe on your, if you had a homepage, then you would put your real name there. But we definitely wouldn't use it for, for communication on, on, these, on these early systems. And that has clearly changed. Well, I mean, obviously now you're on Facebook with your real name, your real picture on, on LinkedIn and everywhere on the web. And, and that's an interesting change. And at the very same time, um, we sort of see a renaissance of the early days of the web, uh, except now they are happening in the deep web. If you go to Dot .onion website and surf with Tor, you'll actually find very much the similar hippie culture we used to have on the early days of the normal web. Nobody's using their real names in the deep web, just like they weren't using it in the real web in the early days. Yeah, I think it's um, <clears throat> uh, it, it's the hippie uh, culture after the um, uh, the Hell's Angels beating at the uh, uh, Alta was it the uh, the music festival where uh, uh, hippie culture ended and uh, uh, drugs and uh, violence. Uh, Started to pervade the community. Uh, I think we're, we're, we can certainly see that as well. Okay, so let, let, let me let me quickly cover something that I know our listeners will be interested in, which is that uh, the uh, Cyber uh, Cyber Security Information Sharing Act is actually moving. It's uh, uh, tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, it will get. Uh, a series of uh, amendments. Uh, the manager's amendment will likely be adopted. And then there's a group of amendments, mostly from the privacy left, uh, that are meant to uh, uh, ameliorate the privacy problems that the privacy uh, groups uh, claim to see in uh, CISA, as it's called. Uh, uh, and then there'll be a vote, which the smart money seems to think uh, uh, is going to adopt the uh, bill. And then we'll have something we haven't seen in Washington in years, as far as I can tell. We'll actually have a conference committee uh, uh, where the the House and the Senate try to wa- work out the differences between the bill. Uh, uh, Michael, I know you you uh, uh, you tend to be from Missouri about uh, uh, legislation, that, uh, and certainly um, the last uh, five years have made you look uh, uh, prudent. But uh, uh, any thoughts on uh, uh, what's going to happen with CISA? Um. You know, I, I I don't have really any predictions on, on what's going to come to pass. It, it is going to be interesting to see with both uh, privacy amendments and, um, I guess, more uh, security-minded amendments um, being pushed if, if we end up with some middle ground or if, if one side manages to prevail. And, and this does cut across, to some extent, parties, um, uh, although there, I guess you can guess that the Democrats tend to be more on the side of privacy, but it's it's you know I think it's going to be close if it, if these do pass, it's going to be a close call. Yeah, I, I you know looking over the amendments, they uh, I guess they I, I I'll highlight three of them: uh, uh, Senators Wyden and Heller showing uh, a kind of uh, bipartisan attack. Um, on uh, the bill are proposing amendments that increase the privacy tax uh, on information sharing. I always thought this was a problem, asking people to scrub this massive amount of data before they share it to eliminate privacy information, uh, private uh, identifying information, especially when there's a whole bunch of quite valuable and relevant private uh, in, individual information uh, um, is a, uh, a 
painful tax on being able to share information quickly. Uh, Wyden and Heller want to add to that tax by saying um, that you have to take out, if you're a private entity sharing this information, uh, uh, any private information to the extent feasible, or in Heller's case, any private information you reasonably believe is not directly related to cybersecurity. I think the current tax says you have to take out what's uh, what you know to be uh, uh, private and unrelated to the uh, uh, to cybersecurity. Uh, those are probably serious impediments if they pass, uh, and my guess is they don't. Uh, um, Senators Flake and Franken, another bipartisan uh, uh, grouping, um, want to uh, impose a six-year sunset. Uh, uh, Al Franken also, this is, I thought, the most appalling thing, wants to say that you can only share cyber information um, that are reasonably likely to uh, uh, adversely affect uh, uh, security so that you have to make a decision about every piece of information that you have about whether it is likely to uh, uh, adversely affect security as opposed to something where you say, well, here's a here's a zero day, and, and if it's weaponized, it could adversely affect security, but we haven't figured out whether it can be weaponized. And the idea that you can't share that information, I think, is a uh, is a deal killer for the uh, and sort of discloses that the uh, privacy guys just are actually anti-security. Uh, they they don't want security. Uh, and then the, there's this enormous fight over uh, Tom Cotton's amendment that said, uh, in addition to sharing with DHS, you can share with the FBI or the Secret Service and still get the benefit of some of the sharing uh, uh, immunities. Uh, and that has provoked, uh, you know, the usual um, turf fight described dis- disguised as a privacy fight as DHS says only we can protect the privacy of this data you shouldn't give it to law enforcement and the privacy guys have jumped in first time they've ever said something nice about DHS trying to uh, kill Tom Cotton's amendment so that's the you know those are the fights that we can look forward to on Tuesday and hopefully we'll get this uh, out in time for people to be able to benefit from it as they watch the uh, uh, Cybersecurity Act debates. Um, uh, I don't know, Nico, you, uh, your, your firm, F-Secure, actually is in the information sharing business, isn't it? You, you presumably find signatures and then spread them to a whole group of people who subscribe to F-Secure or otherwise uh, use your intelligence service, right? That's right. That's right, and I, I'm all for information sharing when we can use it to stop attacks, and, and we do have a traditional undeveloped product line which is built out of uh, definitions and new algorithms that we ship every day, several times a day to our customers to protect them better, as well as publishing IOCs, indicators of compromise, uh, to our trusted partners around the world. So when we look at things like uh, the CISA Act, I mean, there's a lot of information sharing that I like because most of this information wouldn't have privacy implications at all. If an organization lets other organizations know that we are being probed at these ports and they're looking for these and these vulnerabilities, there's no privacy implication. That's not customer data. There's, there's nothing else in there. And the vast majority of the information that I believe that would be useful, that I believe would be shared, would be like this. But at the very same time, I also think that you know companies that would be would volunteer to participate in information sharing like this, if there is information which which is private of their customers, at the very least they they shouldn't just get a free pass to break their uh, end user license agreement and do something against what they've told their customers. You think they should. I don't think they should. I think if they are going to give out private information, if that's relevant, I don't think it's very relevant, but if it is relevant, they should let their customers know that they are doing that and it shouldn't just be a free pass to go on. Miko, do you, do you really think that that's true? I mean, an IP address is uh, or could easily be viewed as uh, uh, personally identifying information. Uh, the uh, the sure. email, the well, email. But, but when you look at attacks, the IP, the IP addresses that you would actually see doing an attack are not the IP addresses of your customers. They're IP addresses of, of 
random outsiders. You have no privacy regulation or individual license agreement with them to begin with. But for your existing users, it's a different story. They, they aren't your customers' private, uh, private uh, information, but they are the ISP's uh, customers. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that when you have a, an agreement with your customers promising not to give out their data, I don't think you would should get a free pass just because of, of uh, uh, information sharing act like this. Fair enough. Uh, so um, the two, two other uh, topics I wanted to touch on quickly. Uh, the CIA's email, uh, CIA director's email was hacked. Uh, the, the most scandalous thing, um, as far as I can t- see, was his email address, which is AOL.com, uh, uh, not, uh, uh, not exactly the hippest, uh, address in cyberspace. Uh, um, but I actually thought, you know, there'd been a lot of snark about how, uh, this shows that, uh, the CIA's security isn't very good. But in fact, uh, it looked to me as though the problem here was, uh, uh, his, uh, phone number became public, and then uh, everything that was done after that was taking advantage of AOL and Verizon's uh, desire to help people who've forgotten their passwords get get back online. Uh, and between the two of them, uh, uh, they managed to give these uh, social engineers access to uh, the account. I don't know, Mikko, uh, if you uh, had followed that or if you disagree with me on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's an interesting case because the, the attackers were not nation states. They were really young teenagers who, whose motivation just seems to be the kind of motivation that we used to see 20 years ago with the early attackers and early virus writers, which was just to try if they can do it and, and just do it because they can and, and, and just to try it out. They got nothing out of this hack themselves, and that's... Right. Uh, I mean, most of the attackers we see and, and, and follow in the, in the online world are making money or are, are settling a beef, like they have a, a personal personal motive against it or against their against their target, or then nation states and extremists. But uh, here, I mean, these kids were indeed posting like some messages about free Palestine. I think those were just posted there because they thought it's 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 cool and. They didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, although you know somebody who did that uh, was slightly more ideological motivation. The uh, Kosovar hacker who did it for uh, um, the for ISIS uh, uh, was arrested in mm-hmm. record time, uh, and the guy he gave it to, who actually leaked the uh, data online, uh, uh, got a, a smart bomb for lunch. Uh, um, so I'm not sure that doing this uh, on the theory that it's all good, harmless fun is is uh, uh, something that people should believe anymore. Uh, obviously, it's a bad idea. I mean, don't do this, even if you think it's just fun and jokes. I mean, yes, the cases you refer to make, it, make a very good point against that. And, and Junaid Hussain, the guy who's, who was target of a drone strike, uh, we were actually following him close to three years ago when he was still a 20-year-old Brit doing break-ins and defacements for fun. Not not, not different from these guys, except he was a bit older. And uh, he did indeed get radicalized and become part of the Islamic State. So speaking of people who are doing this for money, um, uh, CrowdStrike has a blog post out this week that says uh, they've already caught Chinese hackers. They call it, I think it, uh, they call it Deep Panda, but it's clearly a Chinese government uh, uh, organization doing exactly the same kind of commercial cyber espionage they were doing before President Xi um, uh, joined first with President Obama and then I think uh, with the Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain in saying, uh, we're not going to do that. Uh, uh, did you see the CrowdStrike uh, uh, piece and were you surprised by it? I, uh, I did indeed see it, and I'm not surprised. I think uh, China is a big enough country to have that much bureaucracy that a decision will not be delivered to the actual food soldiers in just a week. Yeah. I, I think that it could easily be that the uh, the word didn't get down, or maybe uh, uh, the guys who were doing it say, oh, they can't possibly mean that. They must mean don't get caught. Uh, of course, they've already violated that mm-hmm. rule, too. Uh, but I think you're right. They yeah. uh, although, uh, go ahead. Although I do wonder whether how well the United States um, has actually 
followed the orders. And I wonder if all the operations against Huawei, for example, were seized after the agreement. So I I think the the uh, the U.S. would say if we if we were targeting Huawei, it would be because we believe that they are engaged in espionage against the United States, and therefore they're a legitimate target. We're not stealing their commercial secrets and giving them to Cisco or to uh, well, Nortel. I, I would actually argue I, I believe operations possible operations against uh, Huawei would more like to be interested in figuring out a way to find backnesses and maybe backdoor or trojanize Huawei gear, which would then be used by Huawei customers, who would be the real uh, organization of interest or persons of interest. So um, I don't really think USA, is, USA would be doing industrial espionage against Huawei to steal their technology. But they, I believe, would e- could easily be interested in, in finding vulnerabilities in their systems to use it for further intelligence gathering from other sources. Right. And I think the U.S. government's uh, response to that would be uh, uh, that's not the same as doing commercial cyber espionage. Uh, We're not stealing commercial secrets to benefit another commercial player. We might be stealing secrets so that we can do better intelligence, but that's different. That's a government uh, goal, which does show how how fine this is sometimes sliced in the U.S. government's uh, discussions of commercial cyber espionage. I, I agree. I agree. Nevertheless, I found it hilarious to watch President Xi um, you know, disavow that, no, 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 we've never done any of this. We've never hacked any U.S. companies. We don't do it. We, we've never done it. We won't do it. And then after the agreement, yeah, well, okay, now we will stop doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We weren't doing it. Uh, we weren't getting anything good, and we 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 stopped doing it anyway. Yes. Uh, so, I that brings us to the to the main uh, part of the discussion that I really wanted to get into, which was uh, uh, your uh, F-Secure's report on. Uh, Russian cyber espionage, which doesn't get quite the same amount of play, partly, I think, because, at least until recently, I've always thought of them as the ultimate cat burglars, people who really valued not getting caught, in the same way that the Israelis or the Americans value not getting caught. Um, and yet your report, which is very persuasive on um, the notion that uh, this is a, a, a Russian government operation, uh, suggests that they have begun selectively to uh, uh, deviate from the principle never get caught. Yes, and I think that's, that's a particular trait of the group that we did the expose on. We call this group the Dukes group, and we've been tracking them now for for multiple years. And when you when you compare their operations to some other um, malware operations or espionage operations that we attribute to the Russian government, these guys are, are quite different, and they are quite noisy. Um, and they've done many operations which are sort of like you know, grab and grab and leave, and try to get as much information without worrying about the noise they generate in networks. And uh, uh, I don't really know um, what's the what's the real motivations in the decision to do attacks like this, but but it, it's quite telling, and even more telling of the Duke group is that when they are exposed. Um, they feel no shame. They don't change anything at all. We've done one one report around 18 months ago on one of the Duke malware, which we call uh, Cosmic Duke. And when we released our report, well, first of all, we got plenty of downloads from Russian IP addresses, as you might might suspect. And, and in our report, we had we named um, the different malware families. We listed the IP addresses of their CNC servers, we listed the encryption keys they use, we published the hashes of the binaries they use, and what, what, what the group did in, in, in reaction was nothing. They didn't change the servers, they didn't change the encryption keys, um, and, and that's very telling to me. I mean, these guys are clearly breaking the law with their attacks. They get caught with their pants down, breaking the law. And they carry on doing exactly that. And that tells me that these guys believe that they are untouchable. And if you are untouchable, if you're not worried about 
getting caught and if you're not worried about worried about the rule of the law, that means you are part of the government or you are protected. Either either the government owns you or you own the government. Something like that. And that's quite telling. And now that we published this new report, which is much, much longer, actually details nine different Duke uh, Malware family members with operations that date all the way back to 2007. Um, we've actually been monitoring them ever since, and, and the same same thing holds true. They are clearly aware of our research, and uh, they aren't worried about getting caught. So I, I, that, I think that's one lesson to draw from that. But the other lesson is they aren't apparently very worried that their targets are going to wise up, uh, uh, which makes me wonder whether they are really um, going after the hardest targets. Because surely, once you read a report like this, you enter all of those uh, IP addresses uh, into your blacklist, uh, uh, or at least a list that alerts as soon as you connect to them. Um, how is it that uh, they can continue to uh, have a productive intelligence operation once that kind of information is out if they don't make a change in their uh, infrastructure? Well, they do change the infrastructure, but it changes so slowly that it seems to be uh, not really in reaction to any of the reports, but just, you know, maybe there's, once again, so much bureaucracy in their operations that it's just that they, they aren't as quick to respond as, as, as you might think. And it's also interesting because the Duke gang has had quite different attacks. I mean, they've had very targeted attacks against specific people, uh, like uh, politicians and, and uh uh, think tank uh, uh, managers or uh, executives in defense contractors, and they've been targeted with uh, with uh, fairly good exploits and fairly good techniques at, at one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, they've basically been building botnets with, with very undocketed attacks where they seem to more be doing like, like uh, phishing expeditions that let's infect 5,000 computers, and let's see what we caught. Maybe one of these guys are actually working in an organization that we are interested in. Yeah, so I, I saw that, and, and, and what you where they did that was it looks as though uh, when you leave a Tor, the Tor network, uh, if you've got an executable uh, program that you are uh, uh, bringing with you, they just added a few more executables to that uh, package uh, uh, and then um, uh, botted the, uh, uh, the computer that opened them. I wondered, uh, I thought that was, uh, here's my guess, and you tell me if you disagree. I thought they were probably saying, well, Tor is a bad thing. We don't, well, there are criminals on there, there are foreign uh, spies on there, there are people who are, uh, you know, uh, stealing intellectual property. Um, why don't we just see everybody we can find who's exiting this Tor node, and maybe we can infect other Tor nodes in the same way, and then we can just uh, you know, since they're obviously worried about uh, surveillance, uh, they're probably of interest to us, uh, uh, and this will allow us to kind of do a quick check of everybody who's trying to avoid surveillance. You very well could be exactly on the spot there, and, and for very similar reasons, um, they could have, I mean, because they were also using um, torrent files from file sharing networks that were being distributed by these guys on purpose with infected payloads. And that might be the same logic that there are people, you know, breaking the law and, and sharing uh, illegal files on torrent networks and they are, are trying to catch on them as well. And, and this might be a hint towards the actual actor inside Russia. Because if you look at the different Russian agencies, um, SRV is the agency which has dual role, which is foreign intelligence gathering as well as uh, investigating uh, serious crimes inside Russia, like, like uh, drug, uh, drug trade and things like that, and money laundering. And we have seen two completely different kinds of targeted targets for, uh, for uh, which have been infected by Duke uh, malware. We have seen these targets outside of Russia, which are think tanks and politicians and, and uh, defense contractors and so on. But inside Russia, we do have victims inside Russia as, as well, and they are completely different. They are not politicians. They are not uh, managers. They are people involved exactly in drug trade or money laundering or, or something like that. And that could be a, uh, a well, that's a clear hint to, be, to, to uh, the kind of agency that 
Russian agency that might be behind this. And yeah, the I... tornodes that actually were, were spreading malware, this is the Onion Duke malware. And it's, it's really kind of, kind of, you know, nasty way of infecting users who are using Tor. Because it's not just the fact that if you go and surf the public web over Tor and go and download, let's say, a new Chrome browser. Well, if you actually do that over Tor, it will infect the original executable that you will download from Google. And when you actually run that executable on your, on your Windows computer, it will first infect your computer with Onion Duke, and then it will drop the original installer that, that Google was offering to you, and it will run it. So even if that installer does a self-check, it is actually intact. It's, it's, it's not modified by, by the malware by the time it, it executes itself. And uh, that's, that's, that's fairly nasty, especially when you have applications that you might be running on your Windows computer that do auto-updates. So there could be an application on your computer which once a month connects to the update server, downloads automatically an executable, and runs it. And if you happen to be connected to Tor, and if you happen to be using this malicious Russian exit node, then you will be infected completely invisibly, not because of something you did, but something that might be running on your computer automatically, especially if it doesn't do the update over encrypted channels or check a certificate on the update file before executing. So one more risk of automatic updates that we we didn't think about when they started. Uh, uh, I, that, that does, I, I wouldn't be surprised if large numbers of Tor exit nodes had been... Uh, uh, compromised with, uh, 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 that kind of, uh, uh, an operation and not necessarily by the same actors, but, uh, every government hates tour. So you'd think that a lot of them would have, uh, gone after the tour nodes that they could reach. Yeah, but it's not, I mean, it's, I agree. It's likely that this is happening in much larger scale, but it's probably happening in some other mechanisms than, than, than what, what we were seeing here, because we are actually monitoring Tor exit nodes, and we are doing, doing test downloads all the time to find bad nodes like this, and we don't find them very often at all. It's actually very rare. When we found this Onion, Onion Duke node, we were, uh, we were really excited because it, this is what we were looking for, and we actually found it. However, you could do much more devious modifications via Tor exit nodes. For example, dropping JavaScript exploits or modify the pages on the fly, or do modifications like this, but only do them on targeted computers, not to everybody, but only to users that you can somehow identify as important. So I got one more question about the report, and then I want to talk a little bit about attribution. Uh, um, I was struck by the fact that there were a number of references in the report to earlier Kaspersky reports that also um, focused on and disclosed details about uh, this actor, um, meaning that Kaspersky was was essentially outing a Russian actor. Uh, and I thought, huh, you know, there's a lot of mistrust of Kaspersky in the West, uh, people who think that it's just too close to uh, the Russian intelligence. Uh, uh, and then I looked at the uh, report, and in almost every case, you said uh, Kaspersky had written its report or released its report two days after somebody else had released a similar report. It's almost as though they had it waiting, uh, and uh, but weren't going to be the first to disclose it, either for uh, relationship reasons or because they only wanted to reveal things that had already been uh, compromised. Uh, uh, you're free to react to that or not, depending on your uh, um, your view. <laughs> well, you know, for the record, I know a lot of guys who, who work at Kaspersky, world-class researchers. They have some of the best best brains in the business, no doubt about that. Many of them actually not Russians, but, but people from, from various countries. Um, and, of course, I know Eugene. I first met Eugene in the mid-1990s. Um, my, my personal advice is never go drinking with Eugene. You will lose. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no never, never drink with any Russian. Uh, it's, a, it's an indoor sport there. <laughs> well, yeah. well, no, actually, I, I, I think if, the, if I were going to send somebody to, to drink with the Russians, it would be a Finn. <laughs> <laughs> now, the question is... Whether Kaspersky Lab is close to the Russian government or not, well, of course, it's close with the Russian government. However, I don't think that they are that much closer to the Russian government than, what, for example, McAfee 
is close to U.S. government or Symantec is close to U.S. government. Of course, they're close to U.S. government as well. At the very minimum, these companies have very big business relationships with their government and other kinds of relationships as well. And, and indeed, there's been suspicions about Kaspersky over and over again, but we have, uh, have very little evidence around any, any practical, practical wrongdoings. Um, and, and the reports that we have seen in the media are typically accusing them of uh, like playing um, rogue games against antivirus competitors, which might be happening, which might be unethical, but that's still far away from actually like, becoming a vulnerability to your actual customers. And, and just like McAfee and Symantec are mainly out there to protect their customers, I, I believe Kaspersky is doing exactly the, the same thing. However, I'm not surprised that people have thoughts about them. And, and this partially goes back to the same discussion we had half an hour ago. We used to think the internet brought us this one-world utopia where it didn't matter where your services and where your software is coming from. And now we are realizing that it might actually matter. Yeah. So I, let me ask you then about attribution generally. There's a lot of stuff I wanted to talk to, but uh, you know, you obviously believe that it's possible to attribute these uh, um, intrusions based on evidence uh, derived from the code that the uh, operator is sending out and some aspects of their targeting uh, and timing and overlapping tools. Uh, I, sort of surprising to me was uh, there was a about a week and a half of commentary after the U.S. government blamed North Korea for the Sony hack, saying, oh, they can't possibly know, they can't prove it, all of that data can be faked, uh, which is certainly true. Most of the stuff that was in the F-Secure report could have been faked by somebody who was absolutely mm -hmm. determined to, to look like the Russians. But at some point you say, why would anybody do that? Uh, but I, I wonder generally, do you think attribution is getting better over time or have we just started to get lucky and more focused? Yeah, I do believe that we are getting better and better in doing attribution. And, and lack of attribution is, I believe, actually one of the main reasons why governments have become so active in doing espionage and spying online. Because for years and years, um, there was no easy way of, of, of proving who did what. We, we only were guessing in the dark. So it, it seems like a no-brainer from the government's point of view to start to move some of their espionage operations from the real world to the online world. Because on, online world is cheaper and easier, and it's always deniable. You won't be able to get caught with a smoking gun in the same way as you might get caught in the real world if you have a mole or operative caught in the real world. So that's one of the reasons why why this has become such a big deal for governments. However, I do believe we are we are getting better and we are prepared to say this more and more loudly when we have have very high confidence in who's behind particular attack. And and it's easier for us as a company to do this. I mean, for example, with the Duke report, we come out very clear that we believe this is the Russian government. However, it's still belief. Like we believe like that's what we're, what we're saying. And we here is a company. It's just a company. I mean, it would be much harder for a government to do, do the same thing. The only government which really has, has done this effectively is, is, is the U.S. government, especially with the Chinese uh, cases. But there, the evidence has been also very strong. And one of the ways we are able to do better attribution is by starting the work from looking at the targets. Like even if all the information could be faked, and we have seen governmental attacks which have been, which have had fake information in there, but when you look at the victims, when you look at, the, at who's actually being targeted by these operations, and then you put one and one together, like who was interested in this information at this time? And then you look at another case, and it seems to be same related malware, and it seems to be the same party which would be interested in the information at that time. That's how you start drawing lines, and that's what gives us enough confidence to actually stand up and say who we think is behind the particular attack. 
Well, very good. This was this this was a terrific conversation. Before we go, Miko, I I, I want I I know you're a prolific TED speaker and uh, speaker generally. Uh, do you have any events coming up that you'd like uh, to uh, uh, have our listeners to be aware of? Yeah, well, actually, this week is unusual for me. I'm actually here home in Helsinki. I just got back from California on uh, Friday. However, next week, which would be um, uh, the week which will start on the 2nd of November, I will uh, actually be, well, first of the week, I'll actually be in USA, but I will be leaving the United States very quickly to go to Dublin. Because Dublin has this year's Web Summit, which is a big deal. Over 20,000 people um, in, in Dublin. Um, and I will be talking there to, to the, on the main stage to an audience of, I don't know, around 20,000 people which is enough to make me nervous even after doing a ton of public speaking over the last 15 years. I, I have done the Web Summit, and it is kind of intimidating because you, you can't really see the audience. It's all dark, and so you're standing in the light uh, 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 talking, and you only hear them when they react, and if they don't react well, you're in big trouble. All right, so I'll, I'll start with the dirty joke, and we'll see how it goes. This, is, this has always been my approach, too. Is it, once you get them laughing, you, you don't expect, you know, you figure they won't actually attack you, uh, although in my case that's, that's, less, uh, that's less certain than in yours. Uh, well, Mikko, thank you very much. We, will, uh, we hope to have you back on the, uh, uh, the podcast. This was really uh, entertaining, and, and we, we, we strongly believe in getting you out of Helsinki as often as possible in the winter. I, I, I once went there for, at New Year's to do some legal work, uh, and I spent a week there and never recovered from jet lag because uh, I went, I got up and walked to the office at nine o'clock in the morning. It was pitch black out. I came out at four sometimes, and it was pitch black out. I just never saw the sun. Yep, the sun set today at four, right after four p.m. So the day is already getting shorter. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael Vadis and Mikko Hüppinen. Uh, uh, and as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Send your questions, suggestions for interviews, candidates, or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you want to leave a message by phone, 202-862-5785 in the United States. This has been Episode 86 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. I'm Stuart Baker. Coming up, we'll be enjoying by Ari Schwartz, uh, formerly part of the Cyber Czar's office at the National Security Council, uh, Adam Cozy from CrowdStrike talking about the great canon, and Mark Shuttleworth, the founder of Canonical, the guardian of Ubuntu. Um, we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.